0: again and welcome again to trinity for those in person those online we're glad to gather together to be encouraged in song uh, and and uh, in testimony and and in work and in the word if you have a bible go ahead and open your bible to ecclesiastes chapter 5 we're gonna consider just a small portion i had intended to do a lengthier one but once i got into it i realized that these seven verses needed their own and so we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's hear the word of the Lord and consider it together carefully. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Consider these words, and let's ask God to help us do so. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would find a home in our hearts, and it would bring conviction and comfort, direction and devotion, God, would you help us to know you and love you and follow you? And so would you be with us now as we come to your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last year, my wife and I spent a couple of days in Boston for our anniversary We walked all over the city, seeing many of the things that make Boston truly unique. So color me surprised when I was looking through my Maps app on my phone at all the various historical landmark places or all the iconic places to find, beaming up back at me from the Maps app on my phone, a park bench, a very specific park bench. The Goodwill Hunting Park Bench in, pa- in B- Boston Public Garden. Certainly not expected to find such a thing in my Maps app, but there it was. An iconic scene in a movie where an older, wiser man helped a younger, foolish man gain some much needed perspective on life. And Will Hunting needed much more than that. Hurting on the inside, hurting on the outside, the hardship of life in a frustrating world certainly took its toll on Will. So much so that he was a character that was calloused toward any hope, cautious toward any relationship that wasn't one of his boys, and careless and reckless with everything else. The capstone scene of Goodwill Hunting is when Sean, the psychologist portrayed perfectly by Robin Williams, broke through the calluses and the caution and the carelessness and was finally able to embrace the real Will Hunting. Cornered by the genuine care of Sean, Will kept brushing off Sean's compassion. And the part that guts me every time is when Will says no. Not you too, Sean. As if he couldn't open up his heart to someone he cares deeply about but is too afraid to get hurt. But then as the story unfolds in that moment, compassion won over Will's heart. Many of us relate in some measure to will hunting. We have found that the world is indeed frustrating. We have been hurt or we have hurt. We have found things to be empty, vain, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say. And in so doing, we sometimes, if honest with ourselves right now, project upward toward God a very similar callous or caution or carelessness. The preacher in his quest to answer his question, what does man gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun, now draws his attention on to God. As we've been moving through this series, we've seen him talk about power and pleasures and possessions. The things that can be gained and accumulated and experienced in this life. And he, and he says that they are fleeting and futile. And we've been using the word frustrating to capture both of those aspects. But these things are frustrating. They don't deliver ultimately Yes, we can enjoy them, but that enjoyment is going to be limited, and therefore it's frustrating. Now he turns his attention to God. And as he does, we find a a perspective on God that creates a tension in us. In fact, we're going to wrestle with these seven verses by looking at them or considering them from two perspectives from two perspectives on God. And the first is that we're going to come to find that an under-the-sun perspective on God leads to uncertainty in our lives. Under-the-sun uncertainty. The other perspective that we're going to counter that with is an above-the-sun perspective on God. And an above-the-sun perspective brings about confidence in our lives, even though they're still going to be stuck in the same kind of frustrating world and feel and experience the same kinds of hurts and emptiness and fleeting and futile nature of so many things that we have in our lives. But it's that perspective, either under the sun or above it, that's going to have a profound impact on the way that we live out our lives And so our series is titled, Living Well in a Frustrating World, and our perspective on God is the biggest contributor to such a thing. So let's consider these things together. First, under the sun uncertainty. This is uncertainty toward God. And there are three things that we find in our passage. The first is caution. The uncertainty from under the sun perspective fosters and produces in our hearts a caution. Let's look at verses 1 in the beginning part of verse 2 again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, and let not, let your heart, let, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. We come into something very unique in this chapter. This is chapter 5 of ecclesiastes and this is the first time the preacher is using an imperative an imperative is a is a command verb calling for specific actions so far he's been making observations and reflections upon those observations from an under the sun perspective but now he's telling his listeners and his readers to do something this is important this is distinct and what does he say he says guard Be not rash, nor be hasty. And all of those are calls to be cautious in how you incorporate God into your life. Be cautious how much you put God into the sphere of the way that you live out your life. Now, just as there are sort of three ways to take Ecclesiastes, there are going to those three ways sort of show up in how you take what he's saying about God here. And so how do we take these imperatives? Well, one way says that the preacher is essentially saying God is unreliable, therefore not worth it. Don't even bother. God is unreliable. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the attention. It's not worth your affection. It's not worth your life. Don't bother. That's pretty sour, pretty negative outlook. And that's certainly one way that people take Ecclesiastes, is just showing us a very sour negative outlook on life and God. Second way that people take this passage and also the book as a whole is that the preacher is actually promoting a, an orthodox perspective, highlighting both God's holiness and our humbleness to approach them. And so it's speaking to our humble posture to come before God who is holy and awesome, but we can come as long as we come humbly. And that's certainly coming from a perspective that takes Ecclesiastes as you know, much more on a overwhelmingly positive side, even in the moments in which the preacher explains things from a critical viewpoint. And then there's third way, the way that I've been approaching it, and I think a way to approach this passage here is that the preacher is giving out caution Because just as we have seen in other parts of the Bible, there's still yet too much information that's unknown for us. That there's too much unknown, really, about how God is going to be and how God is going to act. So be cautious. It's not necessarily saying God is unreliable and not worth it. And don't get the sense that he's saying, hey, this is a positive, humble posture to come to God. I see an under-the-sun perspective that says it's better to be cautious with God because you just don't know. That goes back to some other passages earlier in this series. Uh, two that were real close to each other is in Ecclesiastes 3. In Ecclesiastes 3.10, we see the preacher say, I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He he looks at the order and structure and everything of life, and, and he says it's just This chaotic busyness that we're all busy with. And then in 11, the next verse, in the second part of the next verse, he says, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he, mankind, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We're busy with stuff in this life. We're not entirely sure what it's for, but we're busy with it, and God set it up. So get busy. That's his outlook on life. And so as he comes to hear Ecclesiastes 5 and as he looks and considers God, he's really calling a caution, a caution that's born out of uncertainty that comes from his under the sun perspective. And what is this caution associated with? Well, that's the other thing that we should take note in these first two verses. It's associated with prayer. It's associated with prayer, to come to the house, to, to draw near to God, and it, it's associated with prayer. And what is prayer? Well, prayer is certainly the devotional, relational vulnerability one has with God, a, a crying out of the heart to God, a put-yourself-out-there-trust-God kind of thing. Prayer is, is that sort of dynamic But prayer ultimately rests in the character of God, more so than in the earnestness of us who are praying. It's ultimately worthwhile, prayer is, because of who God is. It's worthwhile because of who God is. We sang Psalm 62, a song of, That has been inspired by Psalm 62. And in Psalm 62, verse 8, we're called to do what? Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The psalmist is calling you to to actually run to God with all of your heart and to pour it all out. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5 says, ah, not so fast, my friend. Caution. The preacher's concern or uncertainty, his call to caution, isn't just that he isn't exactly sure what God will do, but he is exactly sure about mankind all around him. He looks around and he sees hypocritical or ignorant people. Hypocritical or ignorant people. He looks laterally and sees inconsistencies in people and says you all foolish people better be cautious with how you go to God rather than looking vertically and recognizing the character and worth of God so it's his lateral observation that really honestly isn't all that off (laughs) I mean we can be foolish and hypocritical yeah Hand first, right here. Absolutely. But the basis of prayer isn't in our perfection. It isn't in our life all put together. The basis for prayer is in the character and nature of God. And so his caution is certainly from under the sun observations about us, about people. And, of course, his unknown of how God would ex- exactly act. So we don't anticipate the preacher to encourage us with Psalm 6-9, which says, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. He's not concerned with that because his observations are from under the sun. And so because of that, he calls for caution. Second under the sun, uncertainty is Is distance. Distance. Let's look at the rest of chapter, or excuse me, the rest of verse two and verse three. For God is in heaven and you are on earth; therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. So he's highlighting the distance between God. Mankind. God is big and far, and why would he bother be bothered with you and with us? The preacher focuses on the distance between God and man and and what seems to him like a reality. God remains out of reach, so don't bother trying to connect with him. Maybe you felt that way in your heart. God seems so far out of reach that it seems pointless to go to him in prayer. And then he says there's something about dreams here and then again uh, toward the end of, of this passage. But dreams is, is a word that refers to something that isn't real. It's, it's like a form of daydreaming. And so he's, he's, he's equating prayer with this God who's big and far to a form of, of daydreaming. Now, some of you might be daydreaming right now. And I might be roping you back in because I caught you. You're busted. You're daydreaming about what maybe lunch might be like, right? As soon as the preacher gets on to his preaching, we can get on to our eating. I don't know. But he's saying that prayer is, is essentially daydreaming. It's spiritual daydreaming because God's so far and so distant. What do we do with that? Sometimes we might feel that way. We <laughs> give you a green light. Maybe you do feel that way sometimes. You, you feel guilty, you feel that way, so you bury it deeper rather than bringing it out and pouring your heart out to God or rather than speaking truth to it. And that's really the antidote to a feel like that. When we feel that way, when God feels distant, what, how do we walk our heart back from that feeling? Well, we acknowledge the truth. And the part of the truth is this. We can agree with the preacher. Yes, God is very big. And in some sense, both morally speaking and, and actually speaking, God does seem very far from us. We can Go to Psalm 115, verse 3, and say, yeah, that's true. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. We can agree with such an observation, but there's more. That God who is in heaven, so far removed from us morally speaking, spiritually speaking, cares very deeply about us. It's staggering when you think about that. We can go to Psalm 8, verse 4. The cosmos is all of it. All of it is his. Everything is his. And Psalm 8, 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? Of the vastness of the cosmos, of the greatness and glory of the heavens, God, over it all, spoke it all into existence, is mindful of mankind. So we're walking, we're walking our hearts back from this God is big and far and distant and he's not going to hear me. Yeah, he is. And he does all that he pleases. And among the things that he pleases is that he is mindful of humanity of you. Well, there's still some more to walk our heart. And that's when we get to the New Testament. And we realize that this big and far God is not so far after all. It's in the incarnation of Christ. I mean, those very famous words from John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God bridging the gap, the distance between him and his holiness and greatness and us and our hypocrisy and our ignorance and our foolishness. He came down into our world, into our humanity. God put actual skin and bones on his, I am mindful of humanity. So we have to walk our hearts back from feeling that God is indeed distant and far. And remind ourselves the truth of his character again. An under the sun perspective makes observations. But then it short circuits any sort of hope by not considering the character and nature of God. So that's the second under the sun uncertainty that grips our hearts. Caution. Caution distance and that leads thirdly to carelessness let's look at verses 4 and 7 again when you vow a vow to god do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake why should god be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands for when dreams increase and words grow many there is vanity but God is the one you must fear. So the preacher observes that people are hypocritical and ignorant and foolish. And he also observes that that people can be careless. There's a carelessness of people to throw lip service at God, to live however they want to live, but then just kind of throw a little half-hearted attempt at God as if he can be so flippantly appeased. And so in really, in one sense, he's right to warn his readers to check themselves before disaster falls upon them, to not treat God so flippantly as if he isn't the God over the entire cosmos, holy and righteous and true and perfect in every way. To be overly casual and careless in that respect. He is saying, don't be reckless with respect to God. But it's also understandable that in a frustrating world, that we can sometimes act that way. Will Hunting was callous toward anyone offering help because he only ever received harm in his life. He was cautious toward relationships that pulled on his heart to open up more space because all the spaces that were there were already damaged. And he was careless and reckless with all the opportunities that came his way because it was way easier for him to control the situation, to push everyone away than to let anyone near. We can go through those same feels and actions with God. We have been hurt in a frustrating world. We have calluses over our hearts because of those hurts. We are cautioned to open up our hearts to others because we don't want to be let down. We are careless with trusting God because, honestly, it's a lot easier to keep everything associated with God arm's length away than to be burned. And if we are honest, we may have even said we have felt the Spirit's work in our hearts No, not you too, God. It is hard in a frustrating world. And the hardness that we experience in this life, if we are not careful, will callous our hearts and obscure our view of the character and nature of God. Under the sun perspective only offers caution and provides no confidence in the face of a frustrating world. So what do we do? Well, we look above the sun. We look above the sun. We take an above the sun perspective on God and from that we find confidence. Two key ways to do that. The first is a little expression that we find at the very end of verse seven. We fear God. The preacher's closing word in the passage is close. It's so close to the answer of his longing, but it's not quite there. Ecclesiastes 5.7 says, but God is the one you must fear. In the Old Testament, there's wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms. And the wisdom literature helps us to see and come to understand the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of living in light of the awesomeness of God, that we would see God as ultimate and awesome and live in light of it, that that is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs is actually even situated around that single truth, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. And it goes on, Proverbs goes on over 31 chapters to show how That, God is ultimate and worth it, shapes the manner of our lives and living. Proverbs 2.5 even says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The very thing that the preacher is searching for can be found when we see God as ultimate, when we trust in his character and worth. It settles our hearts into that truth and shapes the way that we live. Now, We did say at the beginning of the series that Solomon, the author of Proverbs, and Solomon, our preacher here in Ecclesiastes, is Solomon. So how does one say at one point that then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, and then later in his life say, "Uh, yeah, you can't really figure out God, so you should probably keep him at distance in your life. Well, as we stated early and as I want to remind again, First Kings gives us the answer and it says that, that his heart was turned away from God to follow after false gods. He didn't keep his perspective above the sun to the one true God. And therefore, his heart sank into a myriad of under the sun perspectives. And so is our preacher saying fear God in the same way as in Proverbs? I would say no. He isn't given the context of the immediate passage and the structure of the le- of, of Ecclesiastes as it unfolds, and also the ongoing under-the-sun perspective, he's acknowledging God's otherliness, but he is not acknowledging God's grace. And that, my friends, is the difference. Furthermore, he uses a generic word for God rather than the Old Testament, special name, covenant name of God, Yahweh. So He's not giving us the call, at least not here. We'll get to it at the very end of Ecclesiastes, but not here to see that God is indeed ultimate and worthy. But our Old Testament does do that. It does call us to that, that the fear of the Lord does fuel the confidence in our hearts to see God as ultimate and as worthy And as gracious fuels confidence in our hearts in a frustrating world. Consider Deuteronomy 12.12. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And maybe you're like, yeah, I get all that but I'm also kind of like a preacher. I'm not entirely sure how God's really going to be with me because I really, really struggle in the whole walking in his ways. And, and sometimes I'm really just kind of tripping and falling all over myself. So, so what kind of confidence do I have? Well, Psalm 145 is, is the answer to that. Psalm 145 says this about God, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. When our hearts feel weak and wobbly and worn down, we want to we believe things that aren't necessarily true. That God's sick of us and he's tired of us. That he's frustrated with us. And therefore, that feeling causes us to not come to him and pour out our hearts, but rather retreat and hide, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And yet God graciously calls out, where are you? Come out here. And he says that to us. Come out here. Pour out your heart. Don't let the calluses and the caution and the carelessness win. Come here. I am gracious and merciful, I'm actually slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm good to all and my mercy is over everything, even you in your stumbly, uncoordinated ways. So we say to ourselves and above the sun perspective that God is ultimate and worth it. We, we gain confidence when we see that. And then we do the opposite of what the preacher says. <laughs> Instead of caution, we draw near. That's the second thing that an above the sun perspective of the character and nature of God in his ways and his grace does for us. It gives us confidence to draw near. God calls us to trust him, to come to him, to find in him one who is indeed gracious and merciful. Even when our impulse and defense mechanism says to do otherwise, even when we're like wheel hunting in that room, God is calling us out just so that we are clear that we can trust God and take him seriously and joyfully. God goes about in his providence and his purpose and his promise. He goes about providing us with the means and therefore confidence to come to him through The person and work of Jesus Christ. How do we know we have the confidence to draw near? Because Jesus first drew near to us. The above the sun came down under the sun to rescue us from it. There's three verses in Hebrews chapter 4 that I feel are like the, the antithetical grace Verses to what we just read in Ecclesiastes five. Hebrews four fourteen says this: Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since we've had a one. Draw near to us so that we could draw near. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus came down and lived the life that we could not live. Overcame the temptations we could never overcome. Defeated enemies of our soul that we could never defeat. And is reigning and ruling even now as a king and as a priest for his people. That's who we have. That's who we have. Therein lies our Our confidence to draw near is in Jesus. But it keeps going. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands us in every possible way, and yet still says to us, Come. He knows All of it, all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our attitudes, all of our actions, all of the stuff we have buried hidden in the dark, he knows it all. And he still says to sinners like us, come. He entered in, took it on. He knows us intimately, and he still says, come to me. And then... You think, okay, yeah, I get all that. That's for salvation. But after that, I still feel like I'm pretty lousy. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then with caution, uncertainty, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of guilt More work, disapproval, frustration, the throne of grace. That we may receive judgment, ridicule, shame. No, mercy. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because Jesus, because of Jesus, we have forever access and confident access, mind you, to God to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Living well in a frustrating world carries with it an above-the-sun perspective on God where we see he's ultimate and he's worthy, he's worthwhile, and that we can draw near to him because of Jesus and do so with great confidence to receive grace and mercy again and again and again because he never runs out of it for us. Above the sun, perspective rests in and rejoices over the grace of God as on great display in the person and work of Jesus. He is our confidence. So the answer to every doubt that rattles around in our hearts, every shame that strangles our hope, every fear that threatens our future is found in the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is how we see some of the same observations of our preacher but reach very, very different conclusions. Rather than uncertainty, we can have confidence. Living well in a frustrating world rehearses the character of God, rehearses the nature of his grace, the glory of his gospel, and in so doing, strengthens the heart with confidence to face the frustration of this world. The caution of living under the sun perspective is replaced with the joy-soaked Confidence of an above the sun grace. So don't trade that grace for something you will never get otherwise in a world that frustrates. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the honesty and the realness and rawness of your word. Real people going through real crisis and real situations and real stages of unbelief. This isn't a carefully curated book that only posits what it looks like to be a perfect follower of you. It is is a, a book that is tethered to this earth, filled with flawed and broken people, finding grace and mercy in their time of need. And so God, I pray that you would help us be the same kind of people, honest and aware of our needs, and yet, honest and aware of your sufficient and overwhelming grace and mercy for us. So for anyone in this room who is stuck with an under the sun perspective of you, oh God, would by your spirit and by your grace and by your mercy lift up their eyes above the sun. See your worth, your glory, your grace. God, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You would stand again. We're going to sing a song in response.